This week on Medical Minefield, a patient we're calling Charlotte, who felt abandoned by the NHS after being deemed too difficult to treat. Recovery in this country on the NHS is a privilege and not everybody gets that opportunity and it shouldn't be like that. And to Hope Virgo, a campaigner and advocate for people with eating disorders. A lot of people have been traumatised by treatment and they probably just feel like, what's the point? Why would they put themselves through something which will potentially traumatise them again? That's the fault of services. We should be trying to encourage these people to make that full recovery. Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Eve Simmons. And I'm Jill McFarlane. And we're health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week, we're asking why are so many anorexia patients being turned away from NHS services because they're deemed too difficult to treat? As always, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or a suggestion for Medical Minefield, please tweet us at MedMinefield. So, Joe, this is an issue that I've been very interested in. Obviously, regular listeners will know that I have personal experience of anorexia myself, and I'm very sort of involved and um, keep my eyes on all of the eating disorder stories that fill my Twitter feed. And one thing that I noticed that was popping up a lot was from campaigners who seem to be warning about this quite disturbing trend of something called terminal anorexia, which I found pretty alarming. I looked into it a little bit and I found out that it seems to have stemmed from some clinics in America where the clinicians are arguing that there are a portion of anorexia patients who will never get better and forcing them through treatment, which they don't want, is in a way, unethical. And therefore, they are supporting this idea of essentially just referring someone to palliative care and letting them die, really, which is abhorrent (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. But it seems that there are sort of um, whisperings of a similar sort of thing going on over here. I'm hearing of lots of patients who are being told by NHS services that they're resistant to treatment, too difficult to treat, not able to continue with treatment and therefore they're just discharged despite the fact that they might still be incredibly unwell and a risk to themselves. And you've been looking into this this week as well. So tell me what you've discovered. Yeah, it's really quite horrendous, actually. I mean, when I first started reading about it, I thought, surely this isn't actually happening in the UK. But there are quite subtle differences between what's happening in the US and what's happening in this country. So perhaps if I describe Mm. what's going on in the US first and then how that relates to what we're seeing here. So in the US, there's a clinic in Denver, Colorado, run by a very experienced psychiatrist um, who specialises in eating disorders and has done for many, many years. And at her clinic, she has come across patients who, as you say, have no hope of recovery. That's Mm. how she puts it, that they are so ill and have been for such a long time that all treatment options have failed them and they are too ill often to make decisions about the kinds of treatment that they might benefit from. I mean, they're just not benefiting from anything at all. Mm. And she wrote a paper last year based on three patients, all of whom were very, very seriously ill with anorexia and all three of them wanted to die. 
They were in hospices. They were able to take medical aid in dying, which is the term for the US about all of this. Assisted suicide. Basically assisted suicide, what we know over here as that. It is legal in some states in America. This doctor wrote with a huge amount of compassion, actually, about these patients. And interestingly, one of the patients was a co-author on the paper posthumously. She felt so strongly that this should be made available to patients with incredibly severe anorexia that she wanted to be named on the research paper. I don't think all of them in the end took the drugs to allow them to die. I think one of the women passed away before that was able to happen, but she was so pleased that she had got to a point where she could essentially control her own pathway towards death. Mm. Now, what we're not talking about in the UK is putting people with anorexia on a similar pathway. For a start, assisted dying is illegal in this country and various bids to overturn that law have failed. There have been some cases in front of the Court of Protection where a judge has ruled that anorexia patients should be allowed to withdraw from services and effectively be allowed to die. But those are incredibly rare cases. I think there are only maybe two or three, perhaps. There's one going through the courts at the moment, I think. But here, what campaigners say is that, in effect, by telling incredibly seriously ill patients that there is nothing more that can be done for them, that their anorexia is so entrenched that nothing can help them and they've been so ill for so long and are resistant to treatment, that it is, in effect, a sort of palliative care pathway. Now, by saying palliative care pathway, you sort of assume that there's some support there, that they're being sort of helped and supported in a hospice or something. That's not what we're saying. What's actually happening is that clinics are washing their hands of them. Mm. That's absolutely shocking. And also, you know, we know that anorexia is the deadliest of all mental illnesses. And so the risk to patients is incredible of just washing your hands of them, as you say. I mean, we wouldn't do this with any physical illness. So how can they get away with it? Well, it's a really complicated question. Partly it's to do with resources. I think the number of hospitalisations for anorexia have increased something like fivefold since 2007, 2008. The number of beds has not gone up by that much, of course. I think there's only less than 500 across the whole of England. So they have to prioritise who is getting inpatient care. That often means that newly diagnosed patients in crisis are being prioritised ahead of people who've been in a sort of what we call a revolving door patient. You know, they keep coming back in, they go back into the community, bounce back into acute care. And at some point, clinicians are saying, I'm sorry, there's, there's, there's literally nothing else we can try. Mm. Um, you are what we call resistant to treatment. Goodbye and good luck. In some cases, those patients are being supported in the community, but in a lot of cases, they're getting absolutely nothing at all. We're going to speak to one patient, Charlotte, who was told, there's nothing more we can do for you. You've been with our services for seven years. You're resistant to treatment. What do you want us to do? It's time for you to go and live your life by yourself. I have to say that this this does bring back memories of when I was um, on a ward for Mm. anorexia treatment. And there were a number of patients in their sort of 50s, 60s. And I remember one of them who was so lovely and such a character was, I think, early 60s, although she looked a lot older. She told me that she'd had anorexia since she was 13 and wow. had been in and out of treatment for most of her life. Gosh, and love. her life at that point was confined to a very small ward in a psychiatric hospital. She was barely allowed to go outside 
she often needed a stick or a wheelchair to go outside to the smoking bit to just have a cigarette. She obviously didn't eat a lot, but any time that she did want something, she couldn't have it. There had to be lots of paperwork to decide what she wanted, which I thought was ridiculous. And I remember thinking, gosh, this is no quality of life. She had a, a daughter and a grandson and, and she barely saw them. A lot of the time, if she hadn't reached her goal weight for that week, she couldn't go and see her family. And it does sort of make you wonder, does there come a point where actually, what is the point when somebody has been ill for such a long time? Although I would argue that that is a failure of the services and a failure of the treatment pathway for not getting in early enough and finding something that really worked for her. Mm. But now let's get Charlotte on the line so we can hear from someone with personal experience. On the line now is a um, patient who says that she feels that she was abandoned by NHS services because she was deemed too difficult to treat. We're going to call her Charlotte, although that's not her real name. Charlotte, can you start by just telling me a little bit about the kind of situation that you were in when you were discharged from services? Is that right? I was really not in a good place. I was struggling with my insider behaviours really badly. They were a lot worse than they'd been for a long time. But the worse things got, the more the services have pulled away. In what kind of way would you say that they'd pulled away? What kind of things were they doing? They would just constantly say things like, you need to put in the work, you've got to put in the effort. Why is nothing working? And what did treatment look like for you at that point? Was it, as someone who has been through eating disorder treatment myself, I, I know that usually you get a psychiatrist and then there's a psychologist and then there's a dietitian. Was that the kind of thing that you were given or were you, was it hospital inpatient treatment you had? Well, it was outpatients, but it wasn't complete because I was really struggling and I really struggled to let these people in. And instead of like trying to help me to engage, they just said I was being resistant and didn't engage with me. Like I didn't see a dietitian. I didn't see a psychiatrist. Not at all. Um, no, I, didn't. I saw a dietitian maybe twice, but. The appointments were so few and far between, especially around my studies. Gosh. And and can I ask, I know it's a sensitive subject, but I mean, it's quite shocking that you didn't have the input of a dietitian regularly. I'm assuming that weight gain was a challenge for you, was something that you, you were told was part of your treatment. Yeah, whilst I am at a reasonably healthy place, weight gain is still something that needed to happen at that point because you know the minimum BMI isn't the BMI that your body is healthy at and where you have the life that you should have the life you deserve but because of the fact that I was at a healthier place this is when the professionals started to undermine my struggles because it wasn't a risk to them like they didn't see that I was gonna die or anything like that Mm. they didn't care do you feel like you were almost being punished for not being critically ill? I think maybe, but services have always acted like that towards me, no matter how sick or how well I've been. There's always been that sense of kind of coldness. 
I don't know if you have heard about this term terminal anorexia, which is what we're discussing today. What are your thoughts on that? It seems that there are some doctors who are of the opinion that there are some patients who just will never get better and subjecting them to sort of treatments after treatments that just aren't working isn't helpful and means that they're having a, a less of a quality of life. What do you, you think about that? I understand the perspective, but after losing a friend to anorexia-related issues, it's a really difficult subject for me because, you know, I lost her and sometimes I worry that I'm going to be that person. Whilst right now maybe I'm in a stable, healthy place physically, but I don't know what the future holds. And if I was to get into a place and I was struggling really bad, I wouldn't have anybody. And I kind of feel like maybe that's kind of will have labelled me with in a subtle way. Like, you know, I've been in services for about seven years. And after that, they just, they give up. And that's really sad and, and not what medical professionals should be doing who are supposed to be entrusted with your care. Uh, do you have any um, treatment at the moment? No, I'm not under any services at all. And no one's following up or checking on you? No. I'm so sorry to hear that. It's a really difficult situation you find yourself in. And I think we know, don't we? I mean, there is evidence that the more ill someone gets in this situation, the harder it is to get them to engage. But that doesn't mean that you back away. I mean, that means that services surely have a bigger responsibility to step in and help you when you can't help yourself. The idea that you're not trying hard enough is just horrendous it's quite repulsive uh, actually it's nonsense as well but I wonder whether you know the statistics for anorexia recovery are quite bleak there there is a significant proportion they're in the minority but there is a significant proportion of patients who who will unfortunately never fully recover some doctors say that we have to just accept that and you know make patients as comfortable as they can be what are your thoughts about that, Charlotte? Do you think there are some people who, who will never recover? I think as someone who sees themselves as that, yeah, it's not a mean thing to say. I think, you know, some people, they don't have enough things in their lives to make them feel like recovery is worthwhile and enough treatment because recovery in this country on the NHS, I feel like is a privilege and not everybody gets that opportunity and it shouldn't be like that but if you don't have that privilege then you're on your own and if you don't have the supportive people around you for some reason or another you're not going to get that support from elsewhere. Well Charlotte we're really grateful for you coming on and talking today it was very much appreciated. Thank you. What Charlotte was saying about motivation to recover really struck a chord with me. I think that one of the reasons why my recovery has been so successful is because I've had, well, A, my illness was quite short and sharp and I did get into treatment relatively quickly. B, I had such a full life and so many things that I was so desperate to get back to, mainly my job. It was a real push for me to know that all of these things were waiting on the other side and I did see lots of patients who unfortunately really didn't have that or the support system that they did have 
were sort of encouraging their eating disorder in some way or there were lots of triggers. And unfortunately, I think if you're in that position, reaching full recovery is incredibly difficult. You know, the thing about anorexia is we still don't understand it. It's a very, very difficult illness to treat. It does get entrenched very quickly. And there are lots of patients for whom recovery is not impossible, but it can feel like it's impossible. It's incredibly challenging. So it doesn't surprise me that I think a third of patients just won't ever recover. Yeah, I know. It's interesting, isn't it? Although the the counter argument, which is being put forward by some clinicians in the UK, is that if you have had anorexia for longer than five years, then it's entrenched. You're kind of addicted to the buzz that you get from putting yourself on the scales and seeing those numbers going down. And what they advocate for is that if, if you can get out of the services, then that will build your resilience and give you more hope for recovery. I, I don't think that's true. As someone who has been through it, I think you... It's you, very controversial. You get, out of, <laughs> you get out of services and then things don't go very well for you. Well, indeed. Yeah. Um, um, and, and I think that relapsing is is so easy to do unless you have built yourself up to a very strong place of recovery, which takes years and years and years. And let's face it, a lot of this is based on the sort of stigma associated with anorexia mm. as well. You know, just snap out of it, you mm. know, just eat something. Yeah, exactly. Only that it were that easy, eh? Yes, um, we well, now be here. <laughs> we're, we're going to speak to a campaigner now, Hope Virgo, who has been speaking very publicly on this issue. Hope, thank you so much for joining us. What is it that you're seeing with patients that are getting in touch with you about this idea that they're being told they're too difficult to treat or they should go to palliative care or there's nothing more that can be done? Yeah, so it's something that's happening all the time at the moment, if I'm honest. So it's not a kind of one-off circumstance. It's happening to thousands of people, I think, probably on a month-to-month basis. And people are basically saying to me that they've been told that they're too sick for treatment uh, for their eating disorder. They're not putting on weight fast enough. They're not cooperating with the treatment plan they've been given. And as a result of that, they're untreatable. And then they're being put onto either palliative care pathways or just being discharged back out into the community. Gosh. And so the palliative care pathways, is that like people being referred to a hospice and such like? Yeah, in some situations, yes. And we know with that sort of treatment, again, there's no understanding or training within that pathway around eating disorders, particularly for anorexia. But beyond that, I think the main issue is that why are we putting people onto these pathways when people can fully recover from an eating disorder? And is it a treatable illness? What would you say, just playing devil's advocate, I mean, I think this is, as someone who has recovered from anorexia, this this idea makes me shudder with in horror. But just kind of playing devil's advocate, I guess you could argue that resources are so stretched at the moment, as we know, demand is sky high. There are, unfortunately, a significant minority of patients who will never recover and will be those sort of revolving door patients coming in and out of hospitals again and again and again, living quite a narrow life and probably quite a miserable life. And that maybe allowing them to be free of that is at least giving them a sort of better quality of life for the time that they do have left. Yeah, and I I think you've got a really good point. I think that's why the argument and the discussion around palliative care and treatment needs to be nuanced. But I also know that from first-hand experience too, that there were points when I was unwell, and particularly when I was kind of in the depths of the eating disorder, I would have rather not been here than start that recovery journey. And we know recovery from an eating disorder, it's relentless, it's exhausting, it's such hard work, but people do do it. And so for me, it's often like we've got to find a way to support those individuals to embrace the pain of recovery, 
And then when they've embraced that pain, they can start to see actually there's all these positives of making those steps forward and getting to that space where things can feel manageable again. But there are people, if I'm honest, that have contacted me and said exactly what you've said and said to me, actually, I should be respecting the fact that people want to be on these pathways because they want to just kind of do what they're doing and that's it. And within that situation, I think we probably should respect them. But at the same time, I think it's sad that services are letting people down in such a way that people are having to think like this. I remember a very esteemed eating disorder scientist and psychiatrist saying to me, not too long ago, that unfortunately the treatments that we have for anorexia are not ideal. They're not always effective. And actually for a lot of patients, they don't work. And we simply don't have that kind of brilliant, foolproof treatment that's going to work for lots and lots of people or be a sort of quick fix. I guess, what do you think could be on the horizon in terms of treatments? Do you think that things are going to get better? I'd like to think so. So we know that there is one particular treatment that is working. So one rolled out in Oxford, which is a type of ICBTE model, and it's showing a 70% success rate when it comes to treating people with anorexia. Is that like a talking therapy? Yeah, but within that, it's also focusing on getting people to a higher BMI than maybe they would have previously been discharged so that their brain has a proper chance to rewire and recover. In a lot of services, they're so set on getting someone to the lowest possible healthy BMI and they discharge that person back out into the community. And that person has no chance. Well, they have a small chance of staying well. But we know in a lot of situations, that's when people start to relapse and get more unwell again. So we have seen some positive steps forward, but without the funding, without the support, we're not going to see that sort of model being rolled out across the country. I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? That resources are at an all time low. And so it's, you know, in theory, brilliant to roll out these fantastic new treatments. But what keeps happening, I see it over and over again, is you get a very small proportion of the country in one particular area that might get access to a trial. And then perhaps it's rolled out for a couple of months and then it sort of flitters away. Exactly. And I think that's the really scary thing. And that's also then unfair on other people who can't access that. And then again, would come back to the argument, why then do some people get it and some people don't get it? And I think so much of the time at the moment, there seems to be this fixation on tackling waiting times. But actually, what's the point of tackling waiting times if we've got not not got the robust treatment there to then be treating people? We should be putting the funding and resource into working out what treatment's best for individuals. And you say that that you've been contacted by some patients who say they want to be in palliative care. Can you tell us a little bit more about these patients? Why do you think that they're having this quite extreme reaction? I think part of it is, is that they've been in and out of treatment for most of their lives and they've never had the right treatment to recover. And a lot of people have been traumatised by treatment, particularly inpatient treatment. It's it's really challenging. You go into an environment and you're with loads of other people with eating disorders. There's that constant competition. There's constant narrative. If they haven't got well the first time, then they're going back in again and again and again. And they probably just feel like, what's the point? And I think that's where a lot of them are coming from, is why would they put themselves through something which will potentially traumatise them again, where they can just kind of get on with their lives and do what they're doing knowing that at some point they probably will sadly pass away from their eating disorder, but they can live the life they want until then. But I guess for me, it's important to reiterate that whilst I don't want to ever shame people who feel like that, because I totally get how difficult recovery from an eating disorder is. At the same time, I think that actually that's the fault of services and the fault of the lack of funding and the stigma and everything that comes with having an eating disorder. But actually, we should be trying to encourage these people to make that full recovery. 
Yeah, it does sort of feel as if a little bit like we are failing if we're putting patients with anorexia in palliative care. And we wouldn't facilitate suicide for any other mental health condition. We wouldn't say, all right, you know, fill your boots, there you go, and give up on them. We would put in, well, (laughs) we know that funding for any kind of mental health condition is pretty dreadful at the moment, but we would at least try. And it feels like with anorexia, we've sort of stopped trying. No, it's true. And I think part of that's the stigma. People seem to think it only affects kind of white, teenage, middle class, underweight girls. And so we think, oh, they're just going to grow out of it or at some point things will change or it's a vain thing. And you've probably like everyone's heard all of this kind of stigma stuff before. But actually, if we're not going to tackle the stigma that's fueling a lot of these misconceptions, then again, we're not going to tackle the issues around the treatment. Do you think part of it, Hope, is also because it is a very difficult condition to treat when you have somebody with severe entrenched anorexia but can feel just like an uphill battle that you are never going to win and I imagine it must feel like that for clinicians sometimes no I do I think it I think it must feel impossible at times and yeah I think the patience to do that job is is incredible so I do think there is something in that but again the research shows that people do make a full recovery and if we're putting people and saying they're kind of put onto that pathway and just signing them off as someone who's got a severe and enduring eating disorder, actually the lack of treatment's failing that person. Again, it's not, it's not the individual failing us. So I think it's, there's more to it than that, arguably, to yeah, basically just saying that we need to give them that support when they need it. And I think clinicians need to find a way to find that patience and to look at the individualised treatment that is available. And again, that comes back a lot of the time, doesn't it, to issues around funding and issues around workforce. And if we tackle all of that, then we'll probably tackle the treatment. But it's like, where do we even start with that when it's an issue that is so difficult to treat, but also so stigmatised across society? Do you think that recovery is possible no matter how long you've had an eating disorder for? Yeah, I do. And I know people who have been unwell for 40 plus years, in and out of treatment, completely traumatised by treatment, who are now fully recovered. And what is it that what is it that sparks that? Normally having proper evidence based treatment, actually, people who haven't had the evidence based treatment are less likely to recover because they don't fully understand the eating disorder. They've never had that support from a food perspective to know what to kind of give their bodies. And again, from things like an exercise perspective as well, like are they actually getting the proper treatment and understanding around living a healthy lifestyle? And that Oxford model was able to do that, wasn't it, Hope? I remember reading about a woman who had an eating disorder for over 20 years and uh, she went through the Oxford model and now considers herself to be fully in recovery. And she says that anorexia doesn't define her life any longer whatsoever. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. We know it's possible, but it's like, how can we get it? to every single person to have that access, but also people who are put on those pathways who then actually don't want to die. How can we then think, actually, what can we do to support that individual with a model like the Oxford model to then get them to that space where they can fully recover? Well, Hope, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you so much for having me. So tell me about this Oxford model, Joe, because you've been looking into it for this piece you've been writing in this weekend's Mail on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. Stemmed from Italy, actually, but it was brought over to the UK by a team at Oxford who thought they would run a clinical trial here just to see what effect it might have on a whole range of people um, with different durations of eating disorders. I think it was about just over 200 of them in the end. And what this does, it takes 
CBT, so that's uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, which most people will have heard of. It's a talking therapy, but they've used what's the, what they call an integrative model. All it means is that they adopt it as an inpatient care and then they have a programme that lasts beyond inpatient care out into the community. And then once the intensive period of that stops, they still continue having regular sessions. So you start off with 13 weeks of CBT inside a hospital unit. And once you are up to a healthy BMI, up to perhaps about 22, they'll discharge you. Then you will have, I think it's another 12 or 13 weeks of, again, intensive CBT, which will be every day, but as an outpatient. And then you'll continue to have a session a week. So in total, this lasts for 40 weeks. So that's two thirds of a year. That's far longer than most people would get. And the results were pretty startling. About 70% of patients were still well after a year. Only 14% of them had to be readmitted I compare that to people on normal standards of care and I think only 5% are well after a year and about 60% are readmitted to a hospital unit. So those are that's significantly different. But I mean, more research needs to be done. It would be great if we could roll this out everywhere. But as ever, Sounds with these things... Sounds very resource heavy. Resource heavy, exactly. But in the long term, you would think if it was properly assessed, it would save them money, surely, because mm. you wouldn't have those revolving door patients anymore. They wouldn't be bouncing back into acute units. I know that there's another programme called Mantra, which has been pioneered by the Maudsley in South London, which I think is similar. And it's it's basically an intensive CBT type programme that's specialised for eating disorders. So they sort of mould the CBT to be more about eating behaviours and exercise yeah. behaviours, which I, 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 I think it's, it's Yeah, it's very similar. CBTE, I think, yeah. is what they refer to it as. And, and it's had great outcomes, mm. but not everyone can get access to it. And there's huge waiting lists. So it's a real problem. I I have to say I am quite torn on this subject because having spent a lot of time with fellow anorexia patients who, like I mentioned, the older people specifically, who really, I find it difficult to believe that even with the best treatment in the world, they would follow a path to recovery. This is all they've ever known. Yeah. And... Maybe they would, maybe I'm being kind of cynical, but I do think that there has to be a sort of acceptance in anorexia is incredibly deadly, incredibly serious. We don't understand it and there will be deaths because that's how serious it is. And I, and I worry that by sort of saying that everybody can recover and it's something that with a bit of CBT we can sort of knock out of you. It's almost demeaning the severity of mm. the illness slightly. You know, I don't know whether I do really think that, but I, I think it's an interesting point to consider. Definitely. And I, it's full of nuance, but I think ultimately what the clinicians are trying to do when they say that sort of thing is to not give up and to make sure that people do still have that degree of hope. I think as at, at some point, if they do acknowledge that some people are beyond treating, then what does that say to people with anorexia as a whole, you know, mm. um, you might assume that you'd be one of those people. Mm. I think also the nature of the illness is that at some point, for some people, not all, you almost want to get ill. There's sort of some some sort of success in making it to a certain low weight or maintaining that low weight. There's a lot of competition that goes on in anorexia mm. inpatient units because you're trying to be worse off than the other person. So I guess 
you could say that there's no way that somebody with anorexia, severe anorexia, especially if they're at a very low weight, would be able to make a rational decision about whether they wanted to end their life because it's the illness that's talking really, not them. Yeah. But then if the illness is so ingrained in them, how how do you know what is their dis- actual decision? It's a minefield. It very much is. And I think doctors disagree about it as well. There's some evidence of biochemical changes in the brain, mm. you know, after a certain sort of duration. I'm not sure if it's duration or if it's just to do with how severe your illness is, but uh, it is complicated mm. how much is mental illness and how much is actually biological changes to your brain, which means that you can't possibly understand anything at all. Yeah, Who which knows? is why I find it fascinating. It is. won't ever stop writing about it. And with that, it's all we have time for. You can read Joe's brilliant report in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in old-fashioned paper format on the Mail app or on mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Bye.